<laughs> Can we have a few more of those? Come on, we have more. And then shots. <laughs> oh. So whenever you guys are ready. Is it on? Cool. Oh, we're on. Testing on two, testing The red on light two. is on. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Word Up Podcast. I'm Evie. And I'm Webster. And today we are with David Chislet. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Welcome. That the... Thank you very much. <laughs> Was that the best way to pronounce your... Chislet, yeah. Chislet. You don't have to overemphasize the let, but you can. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I <cool>. try. <laughs> to yeah. make it more special. <laughs> so you're a creativity coach and a poet mm-hmm. and overall magical person. With a lot of experience in music business. Yeah. Can you tell us more about yourself? Wow, where do you want me to start? Um, <laughs> all right, well, we'll tell you the long story, right? Yes, please. <laughs> I discovered poetry when I was 10 years old. During an English lesson, a teacher was, yeah, you know, as one does at school, making you read, I don't know, Robert Frost or something. And she was like, you know, you can do this at home. And <laughs> gave us some basic introductions to rhyme schemes, A, B, A, B, whatever you, um, and the idea of, you know, you write the first letters, like you write love, each letter underneath each other, and then you start the first line with L, the second line with O, and so we, she gave us a whole lot of different systems and ideas, and which we all tried out during class, and then for homework you had to write a poem, and I came back the next day with 10. (laughs) Because it was just like, hey, overachiever. <laughs> this is fun. Yeah. I, I liked it, and it clicked in my head, and it was. I was like, hey, hang on, I, I can kind of do this. Um, and yeah, I never really stopped. I've always been a writer, particularly always been a poet. But in between, I got waylaid by rock and roll. Um, discovered how to play the guitar when I was seventeen. Quite handy, having a bunch of poems in when you need songs for a band, right. play, play gigs and stuff. Moved into band management, moved into music journalism, moved into promotions, marketing, PR, and all that evil stuff. Um, finally escaped the music industry with my sanity intact in about 2010, <laughs> and went back to to my core of writing and started kind of publishing books, put out a volume of poetry, volume of short stories, a business advice book for beginners musicians about, mm. hey, this is actually how the music industry runs, this is where the money comes from, this is what you should be thinking about. Ah. And, um, yeah, now since living in the Netherlands, I've also discovered Patreon, which I'm now using as my main platform for my poetry, aside from live performances. Right. That's kind of the short version. And you're originally from South Africa? Actually, originally born in Portsmouth in the south of of England. Okay. But, yeah, grew up in South Africa, South African schools, university, all that kind of stuff. And you've been in Holland now for a while also? Mm -hmm, Five years. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell us about your spoken word. Um, I actually haven't had the pleasure of seeing you on stage just yet, but would you say there's a theme to what you talk about on stage or where do you get your inspiration and uh, what are you trying to share with the audience? I always kind of hesitate to classify what I do with my poetry live as being spoken word. I tend to feel that that term is most often uh, used when describing a much more rhythmic rhyming style of poetry kind of a la hip-hop going slam kind of thing i don't do that 
uh, I'm overeducated and, and middle class navel gazer, so therefore I tend <laughs> to write kind of unstructured, broken verse stuff that doesn't right. necessarily rhyme. Okay, cool. But I come from a performance background. You know, I did a lot of acting at school. I've got a lot of, uh, I've done a lot of singing vocal training, and so even though it's not technically, I guess, spoken word, I put a lot into actually making that stuff come alive when I do it live. That's really my focus. Oh, okay. And what inspires you? Yeah, life. I'm cliche. But, you know, life is endlessly fascinating and weird. We never really know what's going to happen next. We are not mind readers. Uh, history shows that we are extremely bad at predicting what's going to happen next. And as much as we like to think that we are the apex of the food chain, have got it all tied down, you know, we don't. And therefore we get into stupid situations and get broken hearts and make colossal blunders. And I find that endlessly interesting from a poetic point of view. Right. And having been self-employed for 25 years, I've made my fair share of colossal blunders and gotten into lots of sticky situations and got a bit of source material. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it's hard to create art when you don't have much to get inspiration from, right? Well, there's a David Bowie quote, which I absolutely love. Um, I think it's from possibly even from Blue Jean, and it's where there's trouble, there's poetry. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and since moving to the Netherlands, uh, tell us about your business. What do you do? What's your daily life like? And how do you incorporate your poetry into that? Uh, right. Well, the business is centered around the notion of creativity as a fundamental human characteristic. It's something that I firmly believe, and I also believe the science backs this up, we all have in one shape or form. However, society has programmed us to mainly feel that creativity is about art. It's about poetry, it's about painting, it's theater, blah, blah, blah. So when I say to people, hey, I'm a creativity trainer, they go, but I'm not artistic. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, so every single thing you learn is a creative act because you're taking a chunk of information, call it a dot, and another chunk of information, another dot, and you're putting them together and then in your head, for the first time, a new thought emerges. You've literally created it through the process of joining those two dots. That's a creative act. So the, the notion of ongoing innovation, ongoing learning, lifetime learning, all of this stuff is inextricably connected to the idea of creativity and what the physical process of it is. So that's kind of my jump off point. And the scientific research, my own experience, psychological research, all demonstrates that are in fact very specific conditions and skills and thinking approaches that can allow you to be more reliably creative in whatever area you choose to output that. I mean, no one would consider Einstein non-creative, I do believe. Absolutely. And yet most people think mathematics is dull, boring Rigid. stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, you know... Your problem solving. That's what they used to call it at junior school, right? Here's some problems for you to solve. Yeah. Uh, join the dots, create an answer. Yeah. So that's my, my entire approach. And I'm trying to do that for anybody who needs to be in a position to change what's happening around them. They, mm -hmm. Maybe they need to innovate. Maybe they need to modify their own behavior. Maybe they need new ideas to start a business. Maybe their entire business or the company they work for, their entire job is around going to help other people with their problems and they have to, hello, create solutions. And because of what I know through experience and through research, I'm in a great position to help people get better at that solving of problems. 
right nice and um what would be your advice for people who are stuck how to unstuck yourself how to uh, unstuck yourself <laughs> <laughs> you've got to act differently before anything will change and again allegedly an einstein quote you can't solve the problems you have in front of you with the same thinking that got you there and quite often that same thinking is demonstrated by the same actions. So it's incredibly important if you are stuck in any sphere whatsoever to do something different. You know, that's what a midlife crisis is all about, right? You know, the Saturn <laughs> returns, becoming an adult, all that stuff. People change. They start doing different things and that changes their perspective. Mm. I mean, I believe so firmly in actual fact that so much of what we uh, classify as someone's identity is based on our perception of their habit set. And if they change their habits, we will feel like we don't know them anymore. Yeah, they become that, a stranger. Right. And I think that's a really important concept. So if you're stuck and if you want to be able to do things differently and essentially change some aspect of your environment, you're also pretty much going to change yourself. But it starts with taking some kind of action. Hmm. Nice. Why um, do you think... Sorry, go on. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, I'm just wondering, like, you being born in UK and growing up in South Africa and now being here, hmm. does that change your perspective also? Does that help or does that inspire, challenge your whole world view and the way you run business and the way you write poetry? I think changing your physical perspective cannot do anything else but change how you think and see things. I, 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 I think that is inescapable. The role that's played in my life, um, yeah, I've always pretty much felt like an outsider wherever I've been. I've never truly belonged. So that perspective has been quite different to many of my contemporaries and quite possibly is what led me to the desire to write about it anyway. Mm. It was kind of like a private processing system. Um, and, you know, I haven't always had the easiest life. I mean, not the worst or what have you, but, you know, shit happens. And I've always found that... My, my writing has been a very efficient tool to process those experiences and those things. Like there's a lot of poetry I write that I will never show anybody that I'll never publish because that's actually not why I wrote it. I wrote it because I needed to figure something out. Mm. Um, I tend to share the stuff where I've got something to say about something rather than the stuff that I pretty much used as a tool for my own, I don't know. Therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Journaling and... Yeah. 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 Okay. You had a question, Webster? I do have many <laughs> questions. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about how uh, creativity is perceived in, you know, in our community. You know, mm. uh, if you're doing mathematics or maybe some sciences, maybe even social sciences, people will deem you uncreative. What can be done in the education space to allow children, kids, uh, even adults, to know and recognize that they too have uh, creativity within them and that it doesn't necessarily have to pertain to art, music, yeah. filmmaking, whatever. Well, I think we need to change our education system so it's not designed to smash the creativity out of us by the age of 10. Um, if, if you've ever seen Ken Robinson, uh, Sir Ken Robinson, on yeah. how creativity is killed at schools on YouTube, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You know, standardized testing, uh, check the boxes, multiple choice questions, the I mere idea of having only one correct answer all imbues people with this notion that what goes on in their own head doesn't have that much value. And that's what ends up killing creativity. Um, and then there's also the socialization of anyone who's engaged with any kind of art as being essentially 
an outlier, a freak, unreliable, quite possibly, you know, drug user, suspect personality, mentally unstable. I mean, there's still science going into this whole idea about the fact that uh, people who are highly creative are of necessity mentally unstable. Whereas I believe it's actually the other way around. If they weren't highly creative, they would not be able to deal with their mental instability. And people who are not highly creative succumb far quicker to mental illness than those who are. So I believe our entire approach to the notion of creativity has been seriously damaged, primarily by the Industrial Revolution, where it became incredibly important to have essentially meat robots. Mm -hmm who would not miss a beat and didn't have to know anything about everything else that was going on around them. It's, it's basically all Henry Ford's fault. <laughs> <laughs> that's quotable. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. I remember um, as a child um, growing, growing up and you know, changing education systems, growing up in Zimbabwe, which is actually a very rigid system. Very good in terms of like educational standards at the time. But, you, you know, you grow up and you know, this is what we're learning. This is what we're doing right now. And uh, you need to understand these facts because these facts will be uh, asked of you in the exam. And if you don't remember these, you're going to fail. Boom. Yeah. That's it. And then I went to the UK. I was a bit more loose, <laughs> very loose. Um, and I remember, like, trying to answer these questions that I've been given. And my teacher came to me. She said, you know, you don't have to say it in this way. I was like, what? Mrs., what do you mean? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I have to say it in this way. And so I think, I think we need to recognize uh, that there's different ways of learning, that different people learn in different ways. I might say that I had learning difficulties at some point in my childhood. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. I recognize it now. You know, when someone's speaking at you, they're speaking to you, but the information's kind of falling short. You know, I understand what you're saying, but it's going to be gone within 30 seconds. So I think also like understanding how human beings work on a fundamental level is maybe how we can uh, help people be more creative or just yeah. be better people. I agree with that. I mean, I think that um, if I had to go to school now, I would be medicated to the gills because I would have been diagnosed as ADHD, hyperactive, and I would have been definitely a, a problematic behavior child. I was always high energy. But I was so busy with everything else around school. I did lots of sport. Um, I took part in all the sort of clubs and associations and what have you. And I was focused enough to do well enough at school to pretty much be left alone. But I see now that this, this whole roboticization is so pronounced that any kid who counts it still for six hours in a cold gray room with very little stimulation is immediately classified as problem behavior. It's like, that's not fucking normal. No one can sit still for six hours in a boring environment. And it's just like medicalization and almost criminalization of typical human, human behavior. behavior yeah. I, I, it alarms the hell out of me. And especially with like the, your little daughter. About, yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. luckily in the Netherlands, there are more than one option when it comes to education. From what I've heard, the sort of standard public education is a bit like tick the boxes, give the right answer and what have you. But there are other options. Right. So we'll see. I'm not sure if I'm prepared to go radical unschooling just yet. <laughs> A friend of mine in San Francisco is doing that. I'm like, oh, you're brave. <laughs> but yeah, it does worry me. It does worry me. Because, you know, not just the, the stamping out creativity, but all of the stereotyping, all of the prejudice that gets packed into that kind of approach. Right. You know, the, the serious polarization that it entails. On, on so many different levels. I, it's, yeah, makes me uncomfortable.
Yeah, and uh, because also the world that we're living in is also not very equal and very segregated in that way. Yeah. Is there some way that you would advise people to behave or act differently or like in a very basic level? I think one of the things that most average human beings lack and that we don't seem to have any way of kind of sharing or teaching is the ability to empathize, to literally mm. put oneself in someone else's shoes. And the current political environment of polarization actively discourages that. If they're different, screw them, mm. kill them, push them out, build a wall, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. And it's just lazy apart from anything else. It's just so fundamentally lazy. And in any situation where it's been practiced, it's been proven over and over again, long-term to be counterproductive, leads to its own failure. And yet we just don't learn. We just insist on continuing to do it. It's bizarre. We, we seriously just don't learn from our own history. We are in many ways just on this like endless loop in a little maze when it comes to that kind of stuff. Right, of course. Yeah. So the things that we use, like social media added, but then the background story is the same, right? Right. It's just expression that keeps changing. Yeah. And, you know, now we've got big data, which just reinforces every piece of prejudice anyone's ever had on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. can certainly be used to do that. And if you look at the Cambridge Analytica scandals, what they essentially do, did was profile people based on the online behavior and play on their prejudices to, get a, to deliver a, uh, a desired result. And that shouldn't be possible. These are adult human beings we're talking about. How the hell... Are they so gullible? Are they so manipulable? Are they so unaware of their own motivations and the motivations of others around them? They could fall for that nonsense. But we are. Hmm. Here's the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's strange, the human animal. We still, you know, we have all this information available. Like anybody who's anybody can read up on this and understand, you know, who they are and how they're being manipulated. And yet we're still on the exact, I still fall for the same tricks. You know, ad pops up. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, we'll start taking this one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I definitely think there's a, a need for more uh, freedom of choice when it comes to educating ourselves. Yeah. And yet, you know, I always say like, if the cage is bigger, does it mean it's not there? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I think what's what's um, what's missing is the ability to see the cage. Because mm, right. you're right. Just because it's a bigger cage than me say it's not there. But do you know it's there? And for me, that's the crucial thing. Yeah, of course. And to me, like I really like coming from ex-Soviet Union and being in that very, very small cage and then I come here and people are like this is freedom I'm like it's not freedom oh, it's like the police state they know where you live they know what you do <laughs> you have more options but you don't have more freedom hmm. so this is very apocalyptic yeah sorry sorry I, I took that dark like super quick I, oddly enough I'm not a depressed or a, a negative person um, disclaimer I, yeah well you know because I I think it's just, I still believe we have the capacity to act. And that, I suppose that kind of makes me an old school existentialist, that you will then create meaning out of what you choose to do. Right. Yeah, okay, maybe that choice is illusory. Maybe that is how small my box is. <laughs> but within that, I generate something that means something to me mm. within that cage. 
But it's also like, it's not a bad thing to be depressive. It's just a thing that you are in a space and it doesn't mean that you're completely handicapped by it, right? Like if you can still write and if you can still create something out of that. There's a very interesting book on depression called The Care of the Soul. And I can never remember who wrote it. But it's a dude who basically used to be a Jesuit priest and he's a psychologist. And he argues that not only is depression, like you said, not bad necessarily, but it's, it's, it's in fact necessary. And he, he likened it to animals going into their cave to hibernate. I mean, okay, look, we've got to make a distinct distinction haha, between <laughs> feeling a little bit down mm. yeah. and being annihilated by clinical chemical-based depression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those two things are, are generally quite different. Thomas Moore, thank you very much. Um, the th- point that Thomas Moore makes in that book is that if you, are, if you suffer from depression in any kind of, I hesitate to call it normals kind of a way, but sort of like you have bad days, bad weeks, whatever, you always come out of that cycle with something. Mm. A new motivation, a new idea, a new approach, a new reflection. You go deep, you go dark, and you come out with something. And I, again, this demonization and medicalization of depression, I think, is essentially prevents people from accepting depression as basically part of life. But more than that, that a necessary part of a developmental process which gives you the space to fetch something from within. Yeah, for sure. And then it's, I think it's not just depression. You have all kinds of mental issues that are being stigmatized. Well, we just used to call them shamans, really, didn't we? Yeah. And now... <laughs> So, um, I don't know. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to, I was going to follow up on that with the idea of, you know, all these self-help books and the idea that, you know, you're supposed to live a happy life, your best life, you're supposed to be fit and healthy and have a good relationship and your life has to be Instagrammable. Thank you. <laughs> and Cute I think, Evie smile. <laughs> and I think that's teaching people the wrong thing. I remember when I was, uh, you know, growing up and social media started to become a thing. Very quickly, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can see what my friends from all around the world are doing and such. And then it turned on me and I was like, okay, I'm seeing way too much of what my friends are doing. And I feel like as if I'm not doing enough, you know, it can turn on you in that way. I felt like, oh, great. Well, wow, he's just got amazing presents for his birthday. I got a stupid <laughs> Xbox. <Jesus> <laughs> and I think uh, we need to look at how you know, uh, not just the digital age, but like social media and how we interpret the world on a grander scale. Like kids growing up today will grow up with an iPad and all the information available and seeing what their friends are doing and what's that doing to their minds. I think my generation, our generation is growing up with the wave. So you saw we didn't have it and now we're growing with it. And like kids growing up today are just like, that's it. You know, this is the world and this is how you interpret it. Um, What do you, how, how do we navigate that? How do you navigate that as a parent? Well, as a starting point, I'm quite wary of what you just explained, because every generation thinks that. It just happens to be the internet and social media this time around, but before that it was, I don't know, intercontinental aeroplanes, the radio, television, you name it. Every time uh, a technology that impacts the way our society works arrives, the generation who was adult or nearly adult before it arrived is deeply suspicious and highly critical of what the next generation chooses to do with it. And yet, you know, we're all still here. <laughs> so that for me is, is the first caution. It's like you can't make those kinds of assumptions right. about stuff. It's dangerous because, again, 
we are collectively making the mistake that we are normal, that to the left is that extreme, to the right is that extreme. Most people share my point of view. Mm-hmm. They don't, and you don't know that. Right. So it's risky to, to behave like that. And then I mentioned earlier this uh, radical unschooler friend of mine. She pointed something out to me. When I was a kid, what my mum used to say to me was, put that book down and go and play outside. Repeatedly. Those words I heard repeatedly. What do I do for a living? I write. I work with words. I'm a book person. It is my entire functioning adult life. Mm -hmm. We don't know what jobs, what occupations, what vocations will be available 15 years from now. It is entirely possible that these kids are training themselves through this use for a reality that we just can't conceive of. Because we don't have the dots. We don't have the wherewithal to see it. So I'm a bit wary about that response. Having said that, it is also quite clearly proven and obvious that continuously being locked into your phone, especially on social media, puts you into an echo chamber where you learn very little new. That's dangerous. Um, Because, again, all your beliefs are just being affirmed by people just like you, who think just like you, there is no chance for development. That needs to be monitored very carefully in in one's own behavior. In the same way we monitor, say, cigarettes and alcohol, you have to be a certain age in certain countries. Do you think there would ever be a time when kids should not be exposed to certain technologies because of how powerful they are? The research shows that the more controlling you try to react to these kinds of things, the more it just comes out under the edges and through the cracks. So no, I don't believe that. Oh, jeez. (laughs) (laughs) We're screwed, man. (laughs) No, we're not. Because the the opposite result is to educate people and trust them Mm -hmm. and say, you're a switched-on, intelligent, average human being who's actually aware of what's going on here. Choose. Deal with the consequences. Yeah. Instead of trying to say, no, 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 no. I know better than you. I don't know what world you're going into, but I know better. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're saying. Yeah. I guess you have to trust them to make those mistakes in the same way that we made mistakes you know, in our childhood. We sound so old. Yeah. What do you learn every time you do something right? That it works. Right, that's good. which I like you it. knew already, right? Yeah. What do you do when you make a mistake? Don't do that again. You learn something. Like, yeah. that didn't work. Mm-hmm. I need to try something else. Yeah. So it's actually a hugely valuable experience. That's how wine was made. And many other delicious, <laughs> wonderful things. What I want to know is who's the first guy who licked the back of a toad? Yeah. <laughs> and how did that happen? I mean, that's clearly a mistake, right? <laughs> <laughs> People be crazy out here. <laughs> So now we approach the time of the podcast where we would love to hear a poem. And it's going to be interesting choosing one after that conversation, <laughs> right? The Eye of the Needle. Who is this I that we talk of? Sometimes I'm not too sure. The me from birth, a toddler, teenager, young man or old. In so many obvious ways, these are not the same person. Yet I still call them all I. Should I still know you, then, when it's been so long since we last met? Are you more reliable than me? Did I grow more than you, or less? Should I expect myself to hold to some core of being that I cannot even identify? And the same of you. 
I recognize your habits, the way you say certain words, hold your lips. But someone could copy these and not be you. You could lose these and still be you. Tell me the name of your first pet, your mother's maiden name, and the high school you attended. I need your password to be certain. The first pet name I give belonged to my sister, not me. I sign into buildings as David Bowie. I try to change my habits and grow. This is not the I that started this poem, nor is the I that is reading this cell by cell, habit by habit, one realization after another. The world is new in every single second, and us with it. But it's easier to just say, Hi, I remember you. Do you still drink beer? <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Is that in your book or is no. it something that's... So that's part of uh, my current project that I'm busy with. Um, I've discovered the crowdfunding subscription platform called Patreon. Mm -hmm. So I have a page on Patreon. And I'm posting poems and the story behind the poem and an analysis of my work and performance videos and everything on there. And it's it's kind of neat, Patreon, because instead of it being a crowdfunding platform where you, I don't know, put in whatever you are going to put in and you get a book or an album right. at yeah. the end of the yeah. day, this is like Netflix. You right. pay anything from one to five dollars a month and then you get access to all the content that I produce. Right. So it's very low pain point for you. You know, over a year, you're, you're spending less money in a year than you probably do on drinks in one weekend. <laughs> and because a lot of people are doing that, it provides me with some income from my poetry to be able to do things like buy video editing software, uh, go on interesting trips, um, you know, just dedicate hours in a day to be able to generate interesting content around the poetry I'm writing. It's really cool. Right. And how long have you been on there? I have been on Patreon since July last year. Right. So it's a new thing. Still, I'm still trying to get my head around growing it. Um, but it's it's awesome because as a creator, it keeps you seriously honest, man. You've got to keep posting. Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier about the pressure yeah. of social media. Mm -hmm. I've got to put something up every yeah. week. I've got to. <laughs> I can't just take like, your money yeah. and not put something up every week. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So it's good. It really, um, really. And that repetition, that constantly revisiting. I mean, a lot of people hate that idea. They think, ah, I'm not going to be able to produce. Yeah, you will. And yeah, some of it will be bad. I mean, I've put poems up that basically aren't good. But that's I say that. I say like, hey, you know, mm, bad week, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you get the comments and people say, oh, but that line's nice or this is good. And yeah, something comes of it. It's it's kind of turning the art process into a two-way street. Right, yeah. it's a discussion and debate. Right. And... yeah. Because historically speaking, artists have always gotten money from patrons large right. whether it's a king or you know some rich lord or whoever is going to pay them a certain amount to to paint something and that's how you get your money that's but it. i like how this has modernized everything and given the individual's power to say hey i like your artwork and i want to see more so i'm going to give you a tiny bit per month and yeah. that's great for you the artist because then there's less pressure on the individual to give you money and it's great for them because they get to see your work develop and grow yeah the the sort of Archangel of Patreon, who I follow, is Amanda Palmer, the, the musician. She's yeah, played to Neil Gaiman. She's in. Man, what she does on Patreon is mind boggling. It just wouldn't be possible without something like Patreon. 
just the level of sharing, the level of input, the level of output. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's truly flabbergasting. But that's how she started, right? Like through crowdfunding and through opening up to crowds per se. Yes. Well, right? that's how she became Amanda Palmer. Yeah. Before that, she had the Dresden Dolls and she was doing yeah. a whole other thing. Then the label dropped yeah, exactly. her. She crowdfunded an album. Million dollars. First person ever to do that. And then she moved on to the whole Patreon model. It's if you don't know about Amanda Palmer, it's seriously go and go and look into it. It's mm. for anyone producing artistic work who struggles with the current status quo and the gatekeepers and the finances required. It's a very interesting solution. And she has a very cool TED talk also. Yeah, yeah. the art of giving. Yeah, brilliant. But I must say, like I've been on there for seven months. It's heavy going. I'm not. It's not like I'm earning a salary off it. Very far from it. But I'll you probably there. are exposed to people who would not find you otherwise. Correct. Which is also a very beautiful yeah. chance. But like any other social media platform, there's a lot of clutter for me to cut through. So, <laughs> <laughs> sure. If Why you're listening that? to this podcast, <laughs> give me a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you also shared with us your book, yeah. your published book, which is for you or someone like you. Yeah. Would um, you tell us a story? Of yeah. how it started? I was going to say for people who, well, you guys can't see this book, but it's a bright fluorescent orange book. It's very eye-catching and it's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this book also has a social media history. Um, I was on Facebook a good few years back and a friend of mine who is a respected published poet put a new poem up on Facebook and I was like, oh, that's, that's brave. I don't know if I'd do that. And then what interested me even more was the comments that came back. Like people were reacting to that poem in a way I wouldn't have. They were literally seeing things in the words that I didn't think were there, that I hadn't understood. I was like, wow. I mean, of course, my first reaction was, oh, what idiots, they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> but later I was like, hang on a second, there's something interesting going on here. So I put one of my poems up and another one and another one. And the same thing was happening. And that's when I really began to realize that I had no control over my message. Like what I was intending and putting out bore no relationship to what came back. So I published a poem a day for 18 months on Facebook. And based on the comments, the reactions, the likes, I then culled that down to about 100. And then I went through a literary editing process with two friends of mine who are specialists in poetry editing. And we put together a bundle of 90 poems which became the book for you or someone like you, which I then self-published and sent the manuscript off to a bunch of my musician friends before I actually went to print. They turned nine of the poems into songs, and I turned one into a song as well, which I then bundled up and sold as a thing to people. Here's the book, and then here's some like crazy rock and roll versions of the, of the songs with it. So that was a lot of fun. So I've gone from traditional publishing with my short stories through an actual publisher to self-publishing and putting music together with my poetry book in 2012 to subscription publishing on the internet with Patreon in, <laughs> since 2018. It's an interesting journey. Yeah. But do you still keep tabs on your friends from music business? Um, so the, the people who I am friends with, I am still in touch with. <laughs> but in, in terms of keeping up to date with what's happening in the music business, no, not really. So your rock and roll life is behind you. Yeah. He's living a rock and roll creative life, though. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Most of my rock and roll life, as it were, was spent supporting the creative dreams and ambitions of other people. Mm. I'm now living my own. So maybe not over, just different. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's evolving and yeah. transcending. 
Sam. Do you have any pockets of advice for people who are feeling in a rut, uncreative, um, as if they don't know where to go next? I think, apart from what we said earlier, if you're if you are like an art-producing creative person, the important thing is just to not stop doing. Um, because yeah, maybe what you're writing right now is drivel. Maybe you are stuck in a rut. Maybe it's not great. But it's better to have that bad stuff outside of your head than still waiting to be produced inside your head. Work your way through it. All good art is supported by razor-sharp technique. And you don't get any better if you only think about doing all your life. So even when you're going through a rut where your content maybe isn't so good, you are still sharpening your skill set for producing work by continuing to do. Whether it's painting, writing, singing, acting, whatever it happens to be, keep on doing. Nobody said ever that everything you did had to be masterpiece. It's, it's, we just don't know how much junk Michelangelo made. <laughs> it doesn't mean to say that he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's you too. You're no different. Mm. I mean, to, to think that you're never going to produce junk makes you basically think that you're better than Leonardo da Vinci and T.S. Eliot. Yeah, and it stops you from producing because then Correct. you think, oh no, whatever I put out next needs to be perfect. Right, and it's a weird form of egotism, actually. Yeah, yeah like I'm so good, I right. can't put out right. this rubbish. You know? <laughs> of course you're going to write shit, <laughs> yeah. suck it up, write it, yeah. get it out the Get way, go on to the next piece. Yeah. And you learn a lot that yeah. way. Yeah, that's the whole concept of sketching, right, in art. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of these challenges going around. Uh, so I did the poem a day for a year and a half on Facebook. There was that Inktober challenge, a sketch for a day. I met a guy at a creative networking thing during the week where he literally did a sketch a day for a year. Cool. Um, there's a brilliant study on a dude who had never done any art in his life, who over a three-year period just made sure he did something every single day. And now he's selling his work for $20,000 a piece. Wow. You know, I'm not saying that pure mechanical repetition is the key to artistic uh, uh, excellence, but I do know that without mechanistic repetition, you won't get there either. Yeah, like the idea that in Greek times, any artistic expression was mechanical. So they believed that anything artistic you can learn may be drawing, music, and it's only poetry that was supposed to be muse-influenced. So I, I really like that. that idea, yeah. yeah, because it's something that like you can learn anything because it's muscle memory. And you can be perfect. You might not be very inspired perfect, but you will be technically perfect. And right? when inspiration hits, your tools are sharp. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, then you make something amazing. But wow. if you're just waiting around. <laughs> Here is the free advice for everybody. <laughs> it's not free sign up to patreon <laughs> yeah give me your money <laughs> so david where can people find you uh my my virtual home is davidchislett.com there you can find news of my training and also download my poetry book and all my other books as well they're all available as free ebook downloads if you're specifically interested in my new poetry it's uh, patreon.com forward slash david chislett well thank you very much david for speaking with us today thank you so much thank you for coming thank you for your time thank you for sharing your poetry and your book and it's, your album <laughs> yeah thank you it's been a pleasure a great conversation uh, i look forward to the next one Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's it for this week everybody um as usual you can find us on www.wordappodcast.com uh 
there you'll find our social media uh you can find links to past podcasts and just generally engage with us in that way thank you thank we'll you so you. much and see you next time do we <laughs> <laughs> we'll clean that up right <laughs> Thank you.